Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast. I'm Brian Moran, and today I want to welcome Mark Eaton to our show. Mark is an NBA All-Star who played with the Utah Jazz for 12 seasons. He led the NBA in block shots four of those seasons and was named to the NBA All-Defensive Team five times and was named NBA Defensive Player of the Year twice, and he still holds two NBA records. Mark is also a motivational speaker, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. In addition to his work on team building, Mark is managing partner of two award-winning restaurants in Salt Lake City, Tuscany and Franks, which was recently voted best restaurant in Utah. And for all of you out there, I know exactly where I'm going to be going the next time I visit Salt Lake. And with that, I want to welcome to the Small Business Edge podcast, Mark Eaton. Well, thank you, Brian. It's great to be with you today. Yeah, likewise. I'm excited. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm a big sports fan, as a lot of my listeners know, and I usually try and embed a couple of sports analogies into um, whatever show we're talking about and translating it. So this, you know, seems like uh, r- right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, and and, and actually, I, I remember your playing time uh, with the Utah Jazz. You know, I was grew up in New York, so I'm a a Knicks fan and a Nets fan when they were in the ABA, but uh, certainly appreciated the time that you spent in the NBA with the Jazz. Well, thank you. It was a fun time, indeed. Sure, sure. So you wrote a book. So you've had a great career in the NBA, which we will get into. And now you're an entrepreneur with your restaurants in in Salt Lake City. So you can appreciate what it's like to be on a team, to be a team leader, to have uh, winning teams and to have teams that are somewhat dysfunctional. Um, which is obviously the basis for your book. So let's let's get right to the heart of the matter and and tell us what are the four commitments to a winning team. Sure. Well, and I think just to give you one minute of background, um, I came to the Jazz when they were a, a bad team in a bad market, and the things that I share uh, are things that I learned along the way of my basketball career, uh, starting out at as a guy who was an auto mechanic at age twenty one who became an NBA All Star. And um, so these insights that I have come from walking the road of being on a nowhere team with not very good players to one of the elite teams in the NBA and the things that occur inside the locker room that really make the difference between just being a, you know, a guy who puts in his time out there to somebody who can compete at the highest level, both individually and collectively. So with that background, um, the first commitment is really about knowing your job and focusing on that one thing you're excellent at. And what I find in business today is that people are doing, trying to do so many things and go in so many different directions that there's um, sometimes uh, you forget why you're in business in the first place, or you forget what you bring to the party individually that makes the biggest difference. And um, I walk people through an exercise of character traits and skills to help them reestablish who they are, maybe from someone else's perspective, a a peer, a boss, to help give you an understanding of what is unique to you because that's what you need to leverage. And and if you can figure out how to leverage even more in today's economy, I think that's the name of the game. It's about uh, finding a niche Mm -hmm. and going deeper into it with with the skill set you already have as opposed to trying to constantly learn new things. And um, the story I relate to that is when, when I was at UCLA, 
And Wilt Chamberlain pulled me aside one day on the basketball court, and I'm seven foot four. And, you know, he said, you know, why are you running up down the court trying to chase these little guys that you can't catch who are much faster? He said, that's not really your job. And he took me out of the, he took me out of the basketball yeah. court and put me right in front of the basket. And he said, you know, they see this basket behind you. Your job is to stop players from getting there. And your job is to make them miss their shots and collect a rebound and then throw it up to the smaller, faster players to get down to the other end. And it was, it was a real life changing mm-hmm. moment for me because he took the mystery out of this game of basketball that I was trying to compete in at a, at a increasingly higher level all the time and boil it down to one simple task that I could be great at that would not only help me, but help my team at the same, at the same time. And so I call that knowing your job, focusing on that one thing you're excellent at. So let, before you go on, I, I, cause I, I remember that story. I've heard you, you know, talk about the, the time you spent with Will Chamberlain before. And, um, you know, it, it reminds me of this quote by Albert Einstein, which I'm sure you've probably heard that everybody in the world is a genius. But if you, if you, and I'm going to paraphrase now because all of a sudden I can't remember, but it's like if you base, if you base a fish's intelligence on its ability to climb a tree, it will think, you know, go through its whole life thinking it's stupid. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and what's interesting is that, um, it, you know, it took somebody like Wilt Chamberlain to help you better understand that you can't be a generalist in the NBA at the highest level, right? You have to be a specialist. You do have to be a specialist, but you have to be a specialist in the context of team mm-hmm. that uh, it's still got to work for for the team because if the team succeeds, then you succeed. And so uh, Wilt took the, the mystery out of the game for me uh, by sharing that with me because I was just trying to do everything. I was trying to dribble faster, run faster, jump higher, do all these different things. And he looks at me like, dude, you're seven foot four. Like, come here, stand in front of the basket. All right. Put your arms up. Like, don't let people get in here. Like the paint, this is your yeah. area. You know, it becomes your house. And uh, yeah. so, uh, so yeah, I, I, and, and I turned it into a 12-year career um, simply by following that one piece of simple advice that he explained to me in less than five minutes one afternoon in July at uh, the men's gym at UCLA. That's incredible. All right. So the first one is know your job and focus on what you do well. What is What about the second commitment? The second commitment is called do what you're asked to do. And it's really about executing the play. And I ask the question, are we clear about what other people want from us? And do we really know what's expected of us? And when I was at UCLA, I sat on the end of the bench. I didn't play very much. And it was a very frustrating Mm. time. And I had a junior college coach uh, who had talked me into giving up my toolbox at age 21 and giving basketball another try. And he had told me, he said, look, he said, I know things aren't going well at UCLA, but we didn't prepare ourselves just for this year. Like we really have the long-term approach here. You have to continue to prepare yourself for what's going to come next. Because he said, if you continue to work out, hit the weight room and do the little things, you will have an opportunity to try out at the next level, whatever that is, playing in Europe, playing the NBA, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And, um, and although I didn't have a lot of success around me at the time, I did what he asked me to do. Um, I, I got out of the basketball court. I was the first guy there, the last guy to leave. I did my 200 hook shots and 100 free throws and, you know, uh, ran around the track at UCLA and hit the weight room and did all those extra things, even though I wasn't playing that much because I wanted to be ready for whatever came next. And so um, it's really about executing the play. And so, again, I, you know, I just asked that question, you know, how clear are you about other people's priorities and how well are you executing their requests? That's the business application. Sure. And, and I do want to cover the other two, but I, I, I guess, you know, when I hear that story, 
and and I know who your coach was at UCLA. And you know, sometimes we have bad bosses, uh, you know, who don't who don't bring out the best in in their employees, right? And they don't see it as a team. And sometimes it's a it's not a good fit. And I applaud your junior college coach who said, hey, take the long-term view here, you know, because one of the options had, well, you had a couple of options, right? One could have been just drop out and forget it. The other one could have been maybe, did you have the option to transfer? Well, not really back then. Plus, you have to remember I was older. I didn't start this thing until I was 21. So now (laughs) I'm like 23, 24 years old, you know, the time clock is ticking. And uh, so I decided to gut it out and and see what would come next. And um, uh, that was really the only option. And I decided that I was just going to play it through, you know, Mm -hmm. until all the doors were shut. I was just going to keep working because I wanted to give myself every chance to see what would come next. And and the next year when, uh, you know, after, which is a whole other story of cold calling NBA teams asking for a tryout, um, you know, when Frank Layden from the Utah Jazz came and watched me play in a summer league game, he said, you know, I, I've seen enough where I can tell you've been working and, and, you know, if you'd be willing to come to our training camp a month early before any, any other players get there and get on our weight training program and our running program, I'll give you a chance to play for one year for 40 grand. I said, coach, I'm in. I'll yeah. be there a month early. And um, and that turned into a 12-year career because I was I was willing to do that and do what he asked me to do and do what my junior college coach asked me to do. So it sounds like you had a, a, a positive experience in the NBA to start, that you found a coach in, in Frank Layden who, who believed in you and gave an, you enough of a chance to, you know, try out for the team as long as you did what you were asked to do. Yeah, he did. And, um, you know, and I still had to perform and, and do my thing. And, uh, you know, you're always hoping when you, when you get on an NBA team, like, well, how, where do I fit? And, you know, am I really going to be able to contribute? And, and of course, every level you go up, the players are much faster, much stronger. And in the NBA, Mm -hmm. you're playing against the very best players on a daily basis that you saw in college. And uh, so I continued to work with the coaches before and after practice. And, and the defining moment for me was about my second or third month in the NBA. We were playing in Dallas against the Mavericks, who were an expansion team at that time. And, and uh, the coach put me in in the second quarter, and I blocked like six shots in five minutes. And I remember after one of the block shots, I turned around and started running up at the court and I glanced over at the coaching staff sitting on the bench and they're all nodding at each other. And I'm like, okay, I can do this job. Yeah. Yeah. You found, you found your, your, your niche and, and you did what Will told you to do. Exactly. So, okay. So four commitments, know your job, focus on it, do what you're asked to do. Mm -hmm. What about number three? Number three is called make people look good. And our coach, Frank Layden, when I first came to the Utah Jazz, was, as I mentioned, was a bad team in a bad market. And guys in the NBA back then in the early 80s, if you're on a bad team, you just kind of showed up, you know, threw up your 15 shots, punched your time clock, go home, right? A lot of guys really didn't care about winning, even though a lot of my teammates had played on some, some pretty successful college teams. And Frank Layden tried to change that. He said, look, he said, no one cares you're scoring a lot of points on a losing team. Everyone wants the players from a winning team. And he Mm -hmm. said, if you guys will stop competing with each other and start cooperating a little bit, the individual accolades will follow. 
And this didn't happen overnight. It took him a few months to convince us. But he said, you know, he would say things like, well, if we're not going to be in the playoffs, we're going to affect the playoffs. We're going to start gunning for the better teams. We're going to beat the Pistons and the Lakers and the Celtics and the Sixers. Uh, and um, he said, you know, we're, we're just not uh, we're just not going to I'd rather lose the game by two points instead of three because two points is closer to winning. And as crazy as that sounds, he was trying to retrain our brains a little bit to start focusing on on the positive aspects of the game. And over time, we started listening to him. We started passing the ball when someone else had a better chance of scoring. We, we started trusting each other a little bit more. And a year later, we win the division for the first time in team history. We make the playoffs for the first time in team history. And we end up with four individual statistical leaders in the NBA, a feat that has not been accomplished wow. since. So. I led the NBA in block shots. Adrian Dantley led the NBA in scoring. Daryl Griffith led the NBA in three-point shooting. And Ricky Green led the NBA in steals. And that was a remarkable feat that changed the entire culture of our team and the city. And we became known as winners. Right. Because you were you had a leader, a team leader, who had a vision and he had a plan. And he said, and, and he had your trust. You trusted him. Right. You said, okay, if you change the way you play this game and if you trust me, these things will happen. And you saw them happen. Yeah, and they did happen. Well, this guy's a genius. And they happened in increments. You know, we'd we'd beat one of the better teams and you think, oh, that was kind of fun. The crowd get kind of excited, like, oh, let's go out and do that again. Mm. Uh, and uh, so it's, it, built, it built on itself over time. But Frank just held the belief that if we work together, the good things would happen individually. And in the business sense, uh, I come from the standpoint that I ask the question, you know, how focused are you in making the people you work with look good on a scale of one to 10? Is there, are there people in your organization that you need to acknowledge or check in with or buy a cup of coffee for? Are you really, do you really know that you're making your customers look good? Have you asked them? And uh, I just think it's a key to, to business success is really understanding what your people really want from you, um, making them look good, and then and then really you know, checking yourself to make sure that you're clear about what their priorities are and that you're really focused on helping them get to the next level. You know, and that's such an important point. And it seems so simple, doesn't it? Like it's almost common sense. And I, there's another quote that I remember, and I think they attributed this one to Harry Truman, but it was, you know, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. Right. And Coach Wooden was was a believer of that as well. You know, he said it was, you know, it's your, the, the guy, it's not the guy who's the most valuable player. It's the guy who's there for his teammates that's the most valuable. Right. Right. Exactly. And and I, I'm going to want to get into a, a poll that uh, the Gallup company did about an employee engagement. I want to get into that in a second. But we're, I want to get to the fourth commitment. So we have know your job, do what you're asked to do, make people look good. What's the fourth commitment? Number four, number four is protect others. That um, I believe the key to trust and the key to loyalty is really letting people know that you have their back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that's what I did well in the basketball courts. My teammates knew they could trust me because I knew if they went out and tried to steal the basketball out on the wing, if they missed, I would get between their man and the basket. And uh, so commitment number four is really about protecting others. And even to the point of just taking a minute, writing down the names of three people you need to let know this week that you have their back. Um, that's what I did well in the basketball court. That's uh, what other people have done for me. And 
And uh, I returned that favor by by helping them in terms of helping our team win by doing doing my job and protecting protecting my teammates. So that's the, that's commitment number four. So applying this to uh, you know my listeners are business owners of small and mid sized companies. Um, some of them have, and they have told me that they have some morale issues at their business, so a negative corporate culture. And what they're probably asking themselves is, how can I expect any of my employees to make that sort of commitment to me when we don't have an environment that's conducive to changing things around? Well, and, and sometimes, sometimes it's your, you know, it's your star player. That's the cancer of the team that, you know, they, they're not buying into this, you know, this idea of, of, of being committed to the team. And, but to let that person go, that's a real leap of faith because there goes your top salesman or there goes your star performer. And, you know, sometimes you have to give that one person up in order to really create a conducive atmosphere for team commitment. Well, that's like the old question, how many of you have ever held on to an employee too long? And I'm going to be the first yeah. to raise my hand uh, because it is a, a challenge sometimes. And if people don't see the bigger picture and aren't willing to be there for the people around them, it does create that cancer and it creates that uneasiness. And so that's one side of it. The other aspect of it is what do I do individually to help foster a better team environment at work? Am I there for my teammates? Am I checking in with them regularly to see what else I could be doing or what else they might need? And, and again, you can't give employees everything, but, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, it, again, it has to start with you. And so if you mm -hmm. embody the four commitments by focusing on the one thing that you're excellent at, you're going to really honor your role, which is allow, allow other people to honor their roles. And if you focus on execution from an individual and team aspect, you're going to you're going to win. And if people really know that you're there for them, if they really know that you have their back, they're much more mm -hmm. likely to engage uh, a little more on an emotional level. And I'm not talking about you have to go out to dinner with everybody and all that kind of stuff. It's really about right. taking a few minutes to get out of your office and go sit with somebody and say, hey, how's it going? Like, is there anything else that you need? Can I do anything else for you? I always like that that uh, little book called uh, Leadership and Self-Deception, which was written by the uh, Arbinger Institute many years ago. Mm -hmm. And it talked about the difference between sitting on the same side of the table together and looking at the horizon versus having a conversation across the table from each other. If you can get somebody on the same side of the table and you can discuss what the horizon looks like and what you see your part of it is and what you see the employee's part of it is, that's where you can get that buy-in and taking a few minutes to try and understand what their career goals are, where they're trying to go, uh, and see if that alignment comes together. That's where you get the teamwork that you're really looking for. And I've had the opportunity to speak to well over 600 companies in my speaking career, and I haven't found anything I couldn't fix with one of the four commitments. Uh, I, I truly believe it's a recipe for success um, if you dig back down to it. And if you're having a meeting with an employee uh, or something, you know, got some internal strife, um, looking at it from the aspect of how can we help each other? How can we make each other look good? How can we make our customers look good? will help eliminate a lot of that internal strife. And it does take work. It's not easy. And as our coach did with us, it took the better part of a year to convince us day after day that we could achieve more if we just work a little bit together. Um, I, I think it's possible. And I think the culture can change. And once it changes, boy, it's amazing what happens. And, and you're right. It is so simple, right? I mean, follow these four rules, four principles, four commitments, 
and you can change your corporate culture. You can change employee engagement. And yet so many companies don't do it. And I want to read you just a a quick blurb on a a survey that Gallup, uh, the Gallup company has been doing since 2000. And in 2018, their survey said that uh, 40, they surveyed employees to gauge their engagement levels versus disengagement levels at work. And they said 40, 34% of respondents said they were, quote, engaged at work, which meant they were enthusiastic about and committed to their work and their workplace, which is the highest level since Gallup started asking the question in 2000. In addition, 13% of employees were actively disengaged, meaning they have a miserable work experience. And and Gallup said that's the lowest number that I, I can't remember how many years, but they're saying, oh, things are going better. We're starting to move in the right direction. But the remaining 53% of the workers fell into the not engaged category, meaning, you know, they show up, they do the minimum amount of work, but they're going to leave with a slightly better offer. I, I yeah, exactly. I, but yeah. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. You have a hundred employees in your company, and two thirds are either disengaged or actively disengaged. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a fact of life. Uh, people work because they have to, and and the only way to create a, a better environment is to take the time to really get to know your people on a little bit better level, and to engage your management team to do the same. Uh, and so. You know, whether it's uh, me or someone else who can provide you with some um, training or some uh, different, a different uh, mindset or a paradigm shift in how you look at uh, your engagement with your team, uh, that's what has to happen. It's, uh, it's a people environment and whether you've got, you know, we all have great products and great services and for the most part are pretty clear about how to sell them. But if we can't get everybody on the same page moving that direction. If your employees are more worried about the person in the next cubicle than they are about taking care of your customers' problems, um, you're not going to get there. And and it's hard because, uh, you know, we come to work and like, come on, guys, just get the job done. Like, what do you, what's your problem out there? Right. Um, but if people don't feel a, an emotional engagement and that they don't feel like they're, what they're doing matters, um, that's what you, you've just, you know, quoted what the results will be. And so, uh, it's, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy, but, uh, but if you're willing to work at it, I think the, the results you'll see will be remarkable. So it, the, the, the answer is, and I'm sure you've met of the 600 companies that you've worked with, I'm sure some of them have come to you in a very similar situation. Mark, we know that two thirds of our, our, our employees are, are, do not love what they do. And, you know, that hurts us, uh, you know, in the workforce, trying to hire new people, you know, we're going to invite them into a corporate culture that, you know, is is below average at best. It can be toxic at worst. You know, you're not going to find the best people. You're going to find people who need a job and will take anything that's offered to them. So when you look at something like that, what's the what's the first step that a company can take to change its employee outlook about their company? Well, I think the first thing is you got to have a clear mission and vision all the way through the top through the bottom. You know, I one of my clients is a, a large credit union that's that's grown from like five hundred million to five billion in the last mm. five or six years, and experienced explosive growth. And the biggest challenge has been to keep everybody in alignment with the corporate values. 
So you've got to be able to speak that on a regular basis and help under pe- help people understand this is why we're here. This is what we do. I think that's the first mm-hmm. step. Um, and then you have to empower your managers. That you have to spend time in training with your managers to help them understand how to be better people person. You know, per- what's the word I'm looking there for? People. Be- um, I know person people. <laughs> person people. Well, you, you, you understand what yes, I'm trying I to do. say. Yes, I do. The uh, because uh, you know I, I see a lot of times, especially in an economy with where we've got such uh, a low rate of unemployment, mm-hmm. people just get thrust into new positions like a frontline supervisor with no real supervisor training and no real management training. And if you're not taking the time to train those people so that they understand how to take care of your frontline people who are the most commonly uh, engaged with your customers, uh, you're going to suffer. And I see it all the time. Yeah. You know, even local, local small businesses, you go in and there's new faces in there constantly, constantly, constantly. And anybody who's done any kind of studying business understands how much it costs to replace an employee to fire one and try and retrain another one. Wouldn't the better option be spending a little more time training your managers so that they're more effective at managing people and keeping an engagement and taking care of your employees so that they in turn will take customers. And I think that the focus just needs to shift there a, a little bit. And, and again, I think that the, the rewards will be easy to see within a few short months. Yeah. It, right. It, 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 it almost sounds like common sense, right? I mean, if you do this, I think one of the biggest mistakes and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the biggest mistakes that some leaders make is that they try and be their employee's friend, that you know they want to have drinks, they want to be liked as a manager or a, or a boss. They don't want people to talk badly of them, so they try and be friends with their with their employees, and employees yeah. wind up taking advantage of them, and there's jealousy, yeah. And, right? Yeah, and I, I think a lot of us can look back at a, a employer employee relationships and see exactly what happened. I, I have an instance in my own life where I. I did that with a, a manager, a manager we had who ended up stealing from us down the road. So um, it's not about that. So where, where I come from on this protect others piece is that just showing people that you care about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dave, David Stern, who uh, was a great commissioner of the NBA, who started in the, at the NBA when he was the 24th employee, he always had this kind of open door policy. And he said, look, we're always the NBA family. And you've heard him say that many times in public. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, if you had a problem, you were welcome to come into my office and sit down. And if I could help you with it, if I could make a phone call on your behalf, help somebody through a health crisis, whatever it was, he goes, that's just how we ran. And he said that was such a great um, precursor to loyalty and the trust that we built through our organization and this feeling of family because people, employees understood they could come in my office at any time and say, hey, I've got a situation. Can I chat with you for a few minutes? Now, that did not mean that he went out and hung out with them on the weekends or anything like that, but they felt that sense of trust and loyalty within themselves to the point that they were confident that they'd go in and talk to him, that he would listen. And yeah. I think that's, it's, it's kind of one level deeper. Um, you know, it's, it's just showing people that you care. I could fire you and still care about you, right? Sure. Sure. Hope, absolutely. You know, hope you get the next job or, you know, in, in, in the crazy restaurant business, we have people that will leave from time to time as long as they left on good terms because they wanted to go cook some other kind of food or have some other experience, you know, and it's kind of a transient population at times with around the restaurants. It seems like it's a big circle. Mm-hmm. A few years later, they might come back 
and they'll say, sure, we'll hire you back. We had a great time, great experience with you. Uh, and how you've been doing and what's been going on. And, and uh, I, I think that's, that's the kind of level we're, that we're talking about. I, I like that. I like that a lot because a lot of times you hear people say, you know, once you leave, you're dead to me. <laughs> Don't come back and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's probably yeah. especially in the restaurant industry where there is a fair amount of turnover. So let me, let me ask you uh, one more question. And that is now as a company leader with your two restaurants in Salt Lake City, um, how do you talk to your employees about what is coming up in the next 12 to 18 months? Because there's a lot of uncertainty in our world. And I think there's a fear among uh, employees that, you know, they're going to get uh, computers are going to take over their job or, you know, there's a possibility of a recession or they're having trouble paying their bills. And if they get laid off, it's going to, you know, so there's, there's all of these ripple effects, things that they hear in the news and on social media, and they unconsciously bring those fears to work. How do you as a company leader allay those fears in them? Well, I, you know, I, I think that it goes back to like what happened in 2008 and nine when the recession hit, um, business suffered um, and you had to kind of go back to the basic fundamentals again of what are the things that I can do. I can ensure that each customer that walks through my door has a great experience. I can ensure that my facility is in top-notch condition. Um, little things like that are just like on the basketball court that you're not scoring points. What are the other things you can do? You can always play defense. You can always get a rebound. Uh, those just require effort. And mm -hmm. uh, so you have to kind of get back down to the terra firma. And in terms of, of dealing with people who have those fears, you know, the, we can't control the economy all the time. We don't know what's going to happen. What we can do is take care of our business at hand today. And so let's make sure that we're taking care of our key people and our key customers, because even if things shifted and we had to make some changes, uh, we we want to know that that loyalty there is that trust is there and that, that we have enough, a high quality of enough relationship with our key clients that if things shifted and we had to say, hey, we've got to make some adjustments here and how we do business. Um, that there is, hey, sure, so come on in and sit down. That they're just not price shopping you all the time, uh, yeah. and uh, because you've taken time to build those build those relationships. And so, I you know I think that's the best assurance that you can you can give people is let's just take care of business today. We can't worry about the future, but we can worry about how to do a better job of taking care of everyone um, today. Fantastic. I mean, that's great advice. And, and, you know, the, the, I've taken a lot of notes as you're talking. So in addition to the four commitments, which you spoke of, know your job, do what you're asked to do, make people look good and protect others, which develops loyalty and trust. You know, what I'm hearing a little bit is have a long-term strategy as well as a short-term. And uh, something that I talk about a lot in other podcasts, play the what if game. Well, what if this happened? How would we respond? Or what if that happens? And that's, that's almost, you know, like a GPS plan where you say, okay, you know, here's where we want to be at the end of 2019. Here's how we can get there. But we may have to pivot a couple of times between now and the end of the year in order to get to where we want to go. Yeah, I, I think that um, in, you can't always uh, forecast what's going to happen, but you can diversify yourself. You can look at other opportunities. You can see... Uh, uh, you know, what, what else might be out there if something changed and, and make some contingency plans for that and have them ready to activate at a, at a moment's notice. 
Um, but, um, but again, you can't sway from who you truly are as a person or as a business, because that's why people work with you. It's because of those intangible things that you bring that endear yourself to your employees and your customers that you, you never want to uh, get away from. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I'm, I'm hearing you talk, I, I think about that, you know, big common phrase in sports today is next man up. Okay, if somebody goes down, somebody gets sick, somebody leaves the company, who's going to step into that role? The next, it's the next person up. Whether it's a, in your case, it's a chef or a host or hostess or maitre d or server, right? It's it's okay. Yeah, that cross training, that, that idea of cross training, I think is is very effective, and uh, and it's important to in all aspects of business. I think to understand what other departments do. And so I sometimes challenge my clients to say, you know, how, how can you make accounting look good? You know, how can you make engineering look good? Uh, and start getting them to spend more time with each other to learn how other departments do their jobs. I recently spoke to a group of um, um, dealership, uh, car dealership, um, parts and service managers from uh, one of the larger dealership groups in the United States. And and, well, you know, they were always trying to understand why sales would want them to do this, that, and the other thing. And so they, they came up with a solution of when they're having their team meetings, that they start bringing some of their next step down employees with them to those meetings to understand how the other departments work. Because in doing so, once they got back into their own department and somebody came up with an unusual request, they understood the background and that made things move a lot smoother. Again, very smart. You you would think that more companies would be doing that today. Um, this has been great, Mark. I really appreciate your time today and sharing all your knowledge and your experience in the MBA and running your businesses with our listeners. I, valuable advice. And I'm sure you're probably just through this podcast alone will have an effect, a positive effect on uh, more than a few companies out there. The the name of your book is the four commitments, uh, four commitments to a winning team, right? Of a winning team. I'm sorry, four four commitments of a winning team. Four commitments of a winning team. We can buy it on Amazon and local bookstores. Anywhere else where we can get it? Um, That's the best place is to just go to Amazon. Okay. If any of my listeners wanted to connect with you for speaking opportunities or uh, other opportunities, how what, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, it's pretty easy to connect with me through my website, sevenfoot4.com, or look, just Google me, Mark Eaton, and, uh, or any of my social media hashtags, which are all Mark Eaton, E-A-T-O-N spelled out, and then 7-F-T-4 at the end, Mark Eaton, 7-foot-4. You're probably glad you weren't 611, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Would have been a longer uh, .com, for sure. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. Mark, again, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can connect again because I think you have a very important message to entrepreneurs in in the U.S. and around the world and to anybody who is, uh, you know, running a business or leading a team. And, uh, well, thank you, Brian. And we would welcome you again. Oh, I'd love to do it anytime. All right, Mark. Thank you. And for everyone else, uh, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and uh, looking forward to your feedback and comments and suggestions on who you'd like us to interview in future podcasts. Uh, with that, uh, this is Brian Miranda. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast. Enjoy your day. 
You've been listening to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.